Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to our weekly podcast, My Wife Hates Video Games. I'm your not-so-humble host, Travis Bone, more affectionately known as Finally He Sleeps Across the Interwebs. I'm a Gen X video game addict, beer enthusiast, and pop culture fanboy. Each week we'll talk books, movies, sci-fi, gaming, comics, soccer, whatever. And yeah, I, I said soccer. I'm coming to you from the middle of a cornfield in Ohio, USA, where we call it soccer because we're idiots. Uh, there's a fair portion of each show dedicated to FIFA Mobile, my favorite video game, with enough info to help you navigate the current season and take your own team to the next level, so make sure you stick around for that. Thanks for spending some time with me today, uh, now let's get down to business and talk pop. Alright, let's jump right in. I've been on a bit of a break. Initially it was planned due to the holiday and taking some time off to work. Uh, to spend with the family because nothing says stress-free like spending holiday with your family. If you're a kid, maybe. I mean, it's awesome. If you're 43, it's like No Nut November except more expensive and without the happy ending. It was eventful for me, though. Uh, I spent a decent time reading. I went back to work on some writing projects and binged Mr. Mercedes, the AT&T streaming series based off one of my favorite Stephen King novels. See, Christmas came and went. Not too exciting there. Uh, other than my wife clearing out my living room to install a giant bounce house for the kids to jump in. And when I say kids, I mean that very loosely. The age of occupants ranged from like 8 years old to 43 years old. Uh, not some teeny tiny bounce house. Like, like we're talking a giant fucker. 15 feet by 15 feet by 9 feet high. The kind you rent, goddammit. Ex- except we didn't rent it. We own this big monstrosity. I was convinced by my wife it was more cost-effective to just buy it instead of renting it for a birthday party like at least 10 years ago, under the assumption that it would get used many, many, many times. I did what any browbeaten husband does. I tucked tail and handed her my bank card. Now, I will give her credit. The damn thing does get used a lot more than I'd ever like to admit. Unfortunately, more times than not, these instances of it getting set up most often come in the winter months in the middle of my fucking living room. Now, I have a very modest home. It's not small, but it's in no way big either. Uh, My living room is 18 feet by 18 feet, roughly, which means this bounce house takes up the entire space. It's Now, my living room is part of a big open great room that goes into my dining area and then the kitchen. So there's enough room, you know, unoccupied to basically shove all the furniture out of the way and to make enough space for this giant ass inflatable thing. (sighs) And loud. Oh, good God. The pump to keep it inflated sounds like Chewbacca running a lawnmower in my kitchen and that thing runs the entire time it's up. Looking at it, inflated and bumbling around mere inches from my television hanging on the wall above the fireplace, it nearly sends me into a panic attack the entire time it's getting used. Don't be a party pooper, she says. But little does she know that if our house caught on fire, I'd be grabbing that TV off the wall long before I woke her up to get her out of the flames. My television is precious to me. It's my whoopee. Not that I even really get to watch it that much. 
I do enjoy movies on it, and obviously I play a lot of video games. But come on, it's it's my television. It's my baby. The day I bought and installed it ranks up there with the births of my three children. Well, I mean, uh, all right. Honestly, it's it's behind the births of my three children, but definitely ahead of the day I got married. Well, let's just to keep myself from being served divorce papers before the end of this podcast. Let's just say the TV is up there in my personal priorities, and the bounce house situation makes me start twitching and stemming. Uh, my right arm goes numb. My vision gets cloudy. It's it's basically a very bad, bad situation for me. Anyway, pretty boring over the holidays. Just a lot of family bullshit. Then on New Year's Day, I started feeling like actual shit. Nothing too horrible, nothing I couldn't handle, but it quickly got worse and worse and worse. A few days in, and I was on death's doorstep. Viral, I was told. Now, viral is a fancy big city doctor's term that's Latin. Many people don't know this, but viral is Latin, and it means suck it up buttercup. Apparently. Well, according to my wife, because that's all she kept telling me for two weeks. Suck it up, buttercup. Um, basically, if it's viral, they ain't going to give you shit. You just deal with it. There's no way I could record during that time. I mean, I was barely functioning as an adult in the real world as it was. But what I was hoping for was just, you know, maybe a couple of days down. But that quickly turned into two weeks out of commission totally. It was miserable. And then just when I felt like I was starting to recover a bit, my dumb ass would go to training thinking I'd just run some scrimmages and let the players play short-sighted games, but then I would overdo it, I'd get involved, and then come home and relapse for two or three more days. I was coughing up stuff so nasty, I was trying, it was gross, stuff was trying to crawl out of the toilet, um, a few times I felt it was my civic duty to at least recognize a moment of silence before flushing some of the stuff I was coughing up. I know it's gross, and I hope you're not eating while you're listening to this, but the colors that were coming out of me were closer to a Norwich jersey than anything an upright human should be expelling from their lungs. Well, on any day outside of March 18th. I mean, thinking back, there's probably been some pretty nasty March 18ths in my past, too. Green beer... On the 17th of March usually means the luck of the Irish comes spilling back out the next morning in one way or another, out of one orifice or another. And now I think I've taken this about as far as I can or probably way too far. Anyway, I'm back now. I'm running at about 75 to 80% normal. I'm hopefully good for the rest of the winter. Uh, seriously, though, I don't wish that on my worst enemy. The coughing, the wheezing, the headaches, the fever, you name it. I felt like patient zero two weeks before the outbreak, the ends of the world, uh, with Harry, Woody Harrelson on a cross-country adventure looking for the last known Twinkie. Speaking of surviving an apocalypse, one of my favorite console video games is Dead by Daylight. I know it's a bit early in this week's episode to drive you know, right forward into video games, but hear me out. Uh, it's, there's a story that goes with it. If you're not familiar... Uh, Dead by Daylight, now this is direct off of the game itself, is an asymmetrical multiplayer horror game where one player takes on the role of a brutal killer 
and the other four players take on the role of survivors. It's 4v1. It's kind of what the basic breakdown is. There's always five players in one game. Now, if you're chosen as the killer, your goal is to sacrifice as many of those four survivors as possible. But if you're chosen as a survivor, your goal is to repair generators, then open the exit and escape before being caught and killed and your soul given up to the entity. I grew up in love with games like Splatterhouse on TurboGrafx-16 and Friday the 13th on NES 8-bit, which that's the original classic Nintendo. Then, when Resident Evil and eventually Silent Hill were released for PlayStation 1, that was, Jesus, that was back when I was in college, horror gaming took a whole new meaning. I remember sitting in my apartment, three of us, with surround sound up way too loud, uh, a few beers, maybe more than a few, um, playing Resident Evil, and then a devil dog burst through the glass in the mansion, and all of us lost our fucking minds. Bottles got knocked over. Someone started screaming. One of us ended up over the back of the couch. Literally scared the holy shit out of us. I mean, it's funny as hell now, but it was so damn creepy back then. Then, Silent Hill came out a couple of years later. I mean, the original Silent Hill. It was the same thing. Playing that shit in the dark with a few friends buzzed out of our gourd. Uh, the sound cranked way up. The only way you knew some creepy shit was going to crawl out from under a car was because the static on your radio would start getting loud and then part of a creature would come creeping out of the dark attacking you and all you could do was run away um, or kick it. People in the room would be screaming. I mean, that shit was next level in the 90s. Uh, then we all got desensitized to horror games and the survival game. The graphics got better. It just it, it became the norm. I mean, there have been a few noteworthy games over the years, but nothing near as exciting or as groundbreaking as Resident Evil and Silent Hill were back in the day. Until a couple of years ago, uh, my son, my oldest son, he downloaded and started playing Dead by Daylight on the PS4. Now him, knowing what I like, talked me into coming in and trying it and giving it a go. It was the first time since those days back in college playing as Jill Valentine. And yeah, okay, when given a choice, I always choose to play as a female character. Don't look into it. Don't analyze it. I just always go for the woman. So I'm Jill Valentine, trapped in a mansion owned by the Umbrella Corporation. Look for the missing members of Bravo Team Stars. So it was Dead by Daylight is the first time I felt like that playing a video game. Now, Dead by Daylight, it's an online game, so it's you against four, um, if you're the killer, it's you against four, or you and three other people against the killer. And it's online, so you can talk, it's, it's, it's dark, it's quick, it's all about survival. When you're the killer, you can sneak around the playing field, it's, it's, there's like high grass and stuff you can hide behind. Um, once you grab a victim, you have to drag them over to this big rusty hook and you throw them up on it um, like your leather face from the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then you go off stalking around looking for someone else to drag back to another hook. Now, the people are on the hook. They're wiggling. They're trying to die. Someone can come over and get them off. But when you're a survivor, you sneak around the playing field looking for those five generators. Now, once you get them turned on, They'll add power to lights and eventually unlock the exit so you can't escape. 
This game is all about sneaking, creeping through the grass, listening to the surround sound, trying to figure out where the killer is, and just basically surviving. The game is equal parts terrifying, it's entertaining, it's just awesome. Now the killers, they're unique as well and include a bunch of knockoffs and sponsored killers from well-known horror franchises. You got everything from like Leatherface to Freddy Krueger, Jigsaw's in there, Ash from Evil Dead, uh, the Stranger Things characters, Scream, you name it. It's a horror movie fanatic's dream come true. Now, what's more exciting about Dead by Daylight is that there is a mobile version getting released this spring. And you can pre-register online right now to play the game. As always, though, I'll make sure all of these links are in the description for the podcast, so just make sure you check them out. As soon as Dead by Daylight mobile comes out, I'll be streaming it on Twitch as well as like FIFA Mobile. I mean, I kind of have to, especially now after I've talked this shit up so much. Okay, I know I went way off topic, but I needed to explain the game in order to convey, convey what's been going on at my house over this holiday break. Now, my family loves hide-and-seek. The whole family. Kids, my wife, grandparents, uh, great-grandparents, you name it, we play it all the time. I know it sounds a bit stupid, but for us, it's fun, it's scary as hell, and better than game night around a Monopoly border sitting on the couch watching boring TV. Even though I love my TV, you know, we already went through that. We do play in the dark. Sometimes it's across several houses. Let me interject here. If you aren't already aware, I do live next door to my mother-in-law. Our yards are connected. 20 years ago, the house next door to the home my wife grew up in went up for sale after it was foreclosed by the bank. It was bigger than the house we were living in, and we were told we could get it for about 30 grand below estimate, which meant we could refinance and maybe pay off some of that massive college debt. Uh, you know, 10 years of college between my wife and I. Anyway, we moved in next door to the in laws, you know, temporarily. That was the plan. And now we've been here 20 years. About five years ago, my wife's grandparents, who had retired in Florida in their 50s, decided to buy the house on the other side of us to be closer to family as they neared their 90s and possibly hundreds. So yes, I live between two generations of in-laws, and you can just kill me now. In all honesty, though, it's not all that bad. Uh, I'm never short of a babysitter, and if you run out of something, you can go steal it from one of the refrigerators next door. And when you play hide-and-seek, you can do it across multiple houses, which makes it an even more epic game, especially at night in the dark. Now, have I lost a few of you yet? <laughs> Probably. All right, all right. I can go seek. Anyway, over the break, my 18-year-old was home from college, and my 14-year-old wanted to ramp up hide-and-seek. Over a bit of trial and error, we started playing Dead by Daylight in hide-and-seek fashion, and believe it or not, this shit was epic. If you're familiar with the video game, which hopefully now, you know, after hearing my entire description of it, uh, this is going to make more sense. Now, here's how it gets set up. At both ends of the house, we designated hooks. Yeah, I'm putting air quotes around it. There were hooks for the killer to put their victims on. Then we created two exits at the other two ends of the house. Uh, for us, one was in the bathroom off the master bedroom, and the other was in the sectional 
in my living room where that fucking bounce house takes up residence. But anyway, okay, the, the hooks were just designated areas where someone had to stand and count down from 60. It's not like an actual hook in my house, obviously. Um, this, okay, you get it. Now for the generators, we took four cell phones, changed their settings so they never go to sleep, turned it to the timer and started a one minute countdown on each one with a mid volume alarm sound set for when they go off. Now we took a fifth cell phone and put it in the center of the house and put that one on a two minute timer, but made it loud as hell with a different, more significant alarm sound that you could hear all over the entire house over the other cell phones. Now those cells, the, the four, became our generators and then the main one became the escape timer. Now that someone gets designated as the killer, everyone else would go out into my garage, which is kind of like the game lobby per se. Uh, the killer shuts all the lights off in the house except for a couple of little like night lights that come on so you can make your way around the house at 3 in the morning without falling over furniture while you go to take a piss because I'm 43 and that's apparently what we do at 43. The killer proceeds to hide the four generator cell phones around the house. They aren't really hidden, they're just in different locations for each round. When you walk into a dark room, you can kind of see the glow coming off of the generator because it still gives off some light. And remember, the house is almost pitch black at this point. Now, once the killer has everything where they want it, they come and knock on the garage door and then run and hide. All the survivors out in the garage start counting down from 30. Then they enter the dark, dark, pitch black house. Now, because my garage is super bright, once you come inside, you can't see shit. That makes those first few steps into the house the scariest. But wait, I haven't gotten to the worst part yet. Because we don't want anybody to get hurt, the rules are survivors must walk. There's no running. It's like you're nine years old back at the local public pool where the lifeguard's yelling, no running! But anyway, to make things a bit more interesting... The killer has to be on all fours. He's crawling. It may sound stupid on a podcast, but that crawling makes this shit next level freaky. So you're coming into a dark house. You're looking for cell phones like they're little beacons of hope. It's quiet. Everyone is already on edge trying to be still and you know, sneak around, and then here comes this little growling 14-year-old from behind the couch trying to touch you. People start screaming. Um, the point of the game is to get all of the generators to time out, uh, and if you can sneak over to a cell phone, you start the timer, but to make it official, you have to have your finger on the phone to, while it's counting down, and then if you have to leave your cell phone uh, to, to run away from the killer, well, you have to walk away from the killer, uh, you got to pause it. If the killer gets you while you're timing out a generator, the timer gets paused before he takes you to the hook. At the hook, um, you just stand there and you start counting down, trying to hope someone else comes over to get you off the hook to touch you. Now, all the killer has to do is touch you. Then he walks you over to the hook where you must stay until someone comes along and touches you to set you free. So it's kind of like freeze tag. When you're on the hook... You have to loudly count down from 60. That way everybody in the house that's hiding knows 
where you're at because if you get stuck on the hook for more than 60 seconds, you're dead and you're out of that game. If you get caught and hung on the hook twice, you're also dead. Uh, once you get all those generators fixed, meaning their timers are complete and the alarms are starting on all four of the cell phones, then someone starts the exit timer. Everyone still alive at that point has two minutes to make their way to one of those two exits before that, uh, that exit timer goes off. Now, once someone exits, they cannot come back in to get someone else off the hook. So those last two minutes, it's a mad race for the killer to try to hook as many people as he can. And you'll realize real quick which of your kids like you and which ones could give a shit less when they leave you for dead just to clear the exit before they get killed too. Now I'm trying to explain this game, uh, but I don't. I, I really don't think I'm able to do it justice. While my son was home from college, this was a nightly ritual in my house for the month of December. We played for hours. People were screaming. Some of us got pretty good at it. Uh, some of my family often resorted to cheating. There was even a change of clothes required at one point uh, when you scare a middle-aged woman with such ferocity in the dark that she pisses their pants. It tells you everything you know about need to know about why we love this game. Running around the house on all fours, though, was a lot tougher for those of us over 40 than it was for those little shits still under 20. Playing the killer was brutal. The next day I felt like I had been hit by a truck. Hopefully I didn't lose you guys with all that. Um, my oldest is back at college now because we're into January. So my knees are starting to heal, which sounds really terrible, but... Now I'm just waiting for Dead by Daylight to get released in mobile form. Honestly, though, when the timers start going on and they're echoing around the house and they're all off sync, it's dark as hell, and you have random screaming coming from all over, it's the best family time I've spent in decades. Super fun. Really made the my break here at home worth it. Even, even with getting sick afterward, the two weeks where we were playing this right before Christmas was awesome. If you have a big family and this sounds like something that you guys would enjoy, do it. Check it out. Uh, listen back to the podcast. Kind of make your own rules up. But we had a ball. So let's see. What else over the break? It seems like a year ago, but I did make my way to Star Wars Rise of Skywalker on opening day back in December. I pulled my 8-year-old daughter and 14-year-old son out of school to go see the first showing of the day. It was just the three of us. The movie itself was great. It was a little heavy-handed for sure, but you kind of expect that when you're trying to wrap up four decades of movies with a giant bow. The second half was much better than the first. Not that the first was bad, but on a scale from Phantom Menace to Rogue One, I'd put it at Return of the Jedi if that makes sense. It was emotional. There were a couple of scenes that grabbed me by the tampon, but I mean, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but at this point I'm probably going to. So skip this part if you haven't already seen it or not. Maybe not. I don't know. I mean, it's not really bad, but I'll just say that the scene where Chewie finds out Leia's gone was rough. That's not a spoiler per se. Come on. Everyone knows that Carrie Fisher's character was going to die at some point in this movie. Now here, here's the spoilers though. So that was your warning. When Ben gives his life to Ray, that was much rougher 
than Chewie finding out about Leia. Uh, but when Rey sees Luke and Leia in the sand and calls herself a Skywalker, holy shit, that was the worst. I really don't know why, but that was when I lost it personally. Not exactly what I would have preferred to happen, but it was fitting, sort of. I would have rather seen Ben with his parents in the sand or maybe ahead of them, closer to Ray, something. I don't know. Throughout the whole series, there's been a lot of weird overlapping family stuff that borders on the creepy. Uh, Luca Linnea kissing in the hospital on Hoth and uh, Empire Strikes Back, that comes to mind. It's pretty Creepy if you're not Rudy Giuliani or from Arkansas, because, you know, Rudy Giuliani married his cousin. The way the story wrapped up, though, obviously with Ben and Ray having all that chemistry, uh, and then also Leia taking her in like a daughter. The ending with her assuming the Skywalker name both kind of did it for me and didn't do it for me. I, I have mixed feelings. My boat was floating, but taking on water at the same time, if you get what I'm saying. When the film ended, I loved it, but the more I think on it, I'm not quite sure. It feels like there's something missing. The big disappointment was how they sidelined Rose in this movie. That entire subplot just fell apart. Huge disappointment for me. Also with that, I wasn't real happy with the interactions between Finn and Jana connecting over their past as stormtroopers. It doesn't go anywhere, which is good, but it still seemed, I don't know, it was just a little bit off. Babu Frick was interesting. I mean, he's no baby Yoda, but every movie still needs an Ewok. Carrie Russell's character, uh, Zori Bliss, was a nice touch, too. I mean, I love, I love Carrie Russell. I was surprised to see so many actors that I'd normally never associate with this franchise getting their feet wet. Although Samuel L. Jackson with his grape lightsaber about to kill Palpatine, I'm going to put an end to this motherfucker once and for all, still takes the cake for odd casting choices in this series. Um, but uh, what, what the movie really lacked was a sense of loss. Now hear me out. For me, this should have been an epic conclusion to a lifetime of films. Uh, it, it really needed something to just rip your heart out through your stomach to make the resolution of the end of the movie more bittersweet. So what I mean is, okay, Leia dying, Ben dying, those were tough, but they were expected. What we didn't have was that scene in The Force Awakens when we lose Han Solo. Uh, a few more people just needed to die. There, I said it. Um, I know that sounds harsh, but, but consider this. Would the Battle of Five Armies, you know, the last film in the Hobbit series, have been half as good if Thorin had not died in Bilbo's arms? Uh, the epic battle in the Deathly Hallows is so epic because of all of the tragic deaths that sense of betrayal when you lose a beloved character that's what was missing in rise of skywalker i know those two examples you know the hobbit and uh harry potter 
or they're both based off of books, and this is Star Wars, it's a film, it was never intended to be a book. I mean, but it really explains why I still read so often. And an author doesn't give a shit to kill off a character in a novel. It just seems easier. It's something you can do. You kill off a character on the screen, though, and there's no coming back from it. It's a tougher decision. If you happen to read about the leaked script for Duel of the Fates, the working title for Episode Nine before Carrie Fisher passed away and a new screenplay was put together, you know we missed out on quite a bit. Uh, but there were some elements in Rise of Skywalker that I preferred over that original script version. I mean, I could pick this movie apart from beginning to end, both good and bad, um, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, my kids loved it. I absolutely loved it. More people should have died, though. Just saying. Enough said. Actually, there there is more to say. At our theater, uh, the seats are large recliners but they're set up in pairs with a central armrest that you can lift up to make it a love seat rather than two separate seats, which is great for date night, but a real problem with, you know, if you're in a party with an odd number, uh, you end up sharing one of those sets with a stranger. Now I obviously put my kids in one set and put myself out there floating in the love seat for a stranger to invade my personal space. Now, the one thing you can do is get on your phone and choose the empty seat beside you, put it in your cart, but don't check out. That way the seat stays in your cart and lists as occupied for five minutes. There's a little countdown on the app, and then you just keep backing out and redoing it until the movie starts so that no one can buy that seat next to you. Now, I did that. Then, as soon as the lights went out and the trailer started, this dude comes walking in looking like he just crawled out from underneath an overpass and he sits down in the seat next to me. I checked my phone and he was obviously just sitting there because his assigned seat sucked. It was like too close to the screen or something or maybe he just snuck in, whatever. Uh, the seat next to me was supposed to be still available. Whatever. I just moved my drink over from the middle armrest and tried not to worry about it. Then he starts talking during the fucking movie. Now, at far first, he was talking to himself, making observations about characters and how they related to other items in the Star Wars canon. Then he started asking me questions. Very involved fanboy questions. Loudly. Have I read this book? Did I see this subreddit that explained the backstory on this character, how this character first appeared in the background of a Muppets episode that Mark Hamill hosted and Steven Spielberg had a guest appearance on in 1985? Oh. My. God. Shut the fuck up. The one thing I can't stand is people talking in the theater. More importantly, I don't want anybody talking to me in the theater while I'm watching a movie. Unless it's a movie where my sole purpose of watching it is to make fun of that movie. You know, if I'm watching The Killer Condom, I'm good with you talking. I'm going to be the one talking uh, throughout the entire movie. That's kind of the point. But I'm probably watching that movie at home, not in a theater. And it's not going to be Star Wars on opening day. Shut up. You know, that's a real movie, by the way. The Killer Condom. It's a B movie. Well, 
B-movie is giving it more credit than it deserves. Maybe you call it a D-movie or an E-movie. It's about a condom with teeth that bites dicks off in a seedy New York motel. It's like perfect, exactly the kind of movie I love. It's a German film from the mid-90s that's in my, it's in my personal collection. Okay, I've seen it a couple of times. It's a German film that takes place in New York, which seems kind of weird until you really think about it. You know, I don't know. I mean, we're, there's American films that takes place in Germany. We wouldn't think anybody. So maybe it's just me being an, an asshole American. But when I'm in the theater watching Star Wars, just don't bother me. Don't talk to me. At one point, I just simply told him, dude, I'm trying to watch the movie and you're way too loud. He got quiet for about five minutes before he lifted the armrest up so he could scoot over into my portion of the dual love seat thing and whisper, like close to my ear, have you read the Timothy Zahn books? At that point, I just turned to him loud enough to get my point across and said, buddy, I don't even like Star Wars. I'm just here for my kids. You need to scoot your ass back over to your own side and just be quiet. He did get the hint after that and started messing with the lady on the other side of him. But good God, damn near ruined my Star Wars experience. Now, my kids thought it was hysterical. First thing they told their mom when we got home was that I had a new boyfriend and that I now hated Star Wars because kids suck. What else is going on? I'm looking at my list of topics here for this week and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to fit all this in. We'll skip that. Maybe save some of this for another time. One more thing about the Star Wars experience, though. We were in the back row of the lower section. Uh, behind you, there's like a main walkway that divides the upper tier seats and the bottom tier seats. Uh, those are where I prefer to sit. You're right in the, the back row of the lower tier. So you're not so close. It's not difficult to watch, but you're just close enough to feel like you're in the movie. It, trips to the theater are something entirely euphoric for me. It's not just a movie. It's, well... Let's just say I consider it an escape from reality and a chance to take my mind off its leash for a few hours. If anything gets in the way of that experience, it is devastating personally. Me being on the spectrum comes out in full force in these instances. Any, any, anyway, about 10 minutes into the film, I hear footsteps behind me. Uh, not someone walking, but someone like frog-stepping you know, behind my chair, back and forth in the main hallway. It's like Hitler's marching his men back there. I tried to ignore it, and, you know, besides I was already a bit preoccupied with Chatty Cathy sitting next to me, uh, then the stomping, marching footsteps turn into running. Uh, there's a few hushed whispers down the aisle, and then I hear someone say, Lady, get your kid in check. And then it gets real quiet. Then more running. And again, and this time you hear like people muttering and someone getting pissed. Uh, and then the footsteps get closer and my daughter yells, hey. And then the back of my chair gets knocked forward. Some kid, he's basically running back and forth behind us, which was annoying enough until he decided to start running back and forth and hitting chairs. I mean, literally felt like I was a horse kicked the back of my seat. The complaints got a lot louder at that point, and then someone finally stands up, 
like about halfway down in the dark and says loud enough that everyone in our vicinity of the theater could hear him. Lady, if you don't get that kid under control, I will. And it won't be pretty. Then I'm going to do to you what I should, what you should have done to him. I mean, a few people like gasped out loud because this guy basically just threatened this lady and her kid. Then a few people actually started clapping. Then it got quiet for like a split second and then louder clapping. Uh, that's when one of the theater managers, like an usher, a couple of them were walking behind my seat with a party of people complaining. And all of a, her, all of a sudden we hear him tell her, uh, ma'am, we've been getting complaints from multiple people since this movie started. When you got the manager telling you that you're getting multiple complaints, uh, just leave your kids at home. Ugh. And now a word from our sponsor. Do your kids embarrass you in public? Do they talk back? act disrespectful, fail to listen, fail to mind you, or worse, they cause disturbances in restaurants, movie theaters, or anywhere their outright unruliness becomes an issue for those around you? Worry no more. All you need is discipline. This basic concept of cause and effect has been around a lot longer than you think. Using the Pavlovian theory of learned responses through conditioned triggers, you can turn your heathen brood into a well-oiled machine with a few simple steps. When their behavior doesn't match the accepted behavior called for in a current situation, apply the appropriate amount of discipline and stick to it. The key is never backing down or feeling guilty afterward. Eventually, they'll start to understand that when they act like insufferable little shits, they'll lose their cell phones or get the shit knocked out of them. Simple cause and effect. If Pavlov's dog could figure it out over a century ago, even the dumbest child can surely follow suit today. Discipline. Eventually, it will make going out in public more enjoyable, at least for those people around you. Okay, since we just gave away a few things in Star Wars, may as well give away some more from Watchmen. The HBO limited run series ended about a month ago, I think. That should be enough time to allow everyone to watch it, but if not, you're going to want to skip this part too because I'm probably going to give away some things here too. I said in shows past that I felt like the best way to watch the Watchmen series was in a row, binging it like it was Stranger Things. Uh, when it ended, that sentiment was confirmed. Everything started to come together in the last two or three episodes. Stuff from way back in episode four or five ultimately started to make sense, too. There were other areas that just completely went off the rails, though. They jumped the tracks altogether and ended up off the cliff into the ocean like a pack of suicidal lemmings. There were a lot of questions that were never answered, like why the fucking elephant was used to detox Angela. How in the hell Osmandius was making all those squids? Squid? Making all those squid? Is it squid or squids? What's the plural of squid? I don't know. Why wasn't terminal velocity taken into account when all of those squids, squid, when all of those squid became projectiles? And most importantly, just how big was Dr. Manhattan making his junk when he was banging Silk Spectre back in the 80s? The dildo that Agent Blake pulled out looked more like a two-liter of Windex than a sex toy. If she was actually banging him out with that thing, she'd be walking funny for weeks. And last, and most importantly, if Dr. Manhattan can see all time at once and he knows his own fate, but has the ability to both prevent 
and manipulate it, which he both does and doesn't do over the course of Angela's life, doesn't he really just accept his own timeline and in turn, in essence, knowingly and willingly commit suicide? Even if it's just over the course of him accepting what he sees and experiences as already happening rather than something that he can change and control, it's obvious that he makes some decisions and he reacts to situations and more, not just follows along a path that he already knows is happening. So his eventual demise in the show just, it felt really meh. I don't know. I, I enjoyed the series, but not enough to ever watch it again. And cutting it off when they did as Angela's feet were touching the water was just enough to piss me off instead of leaving me speculating where it might go after the credits. At that point, I didn't even really care whether or not Angela was the new Dr. Manhattan, if she could walk on water or not. I'd, I'd have preferred her stepping out and standing on the water. Now that would have left me wanting more. Instead, the ending was like, with a girl who was trying to be mysterious in the intention of drawing me in to know more, but instead just comes off like an uppity bitch. And I'm glad I'm dropping her off in a few hours. No, it was a limited run series. It's over. Uh, there's going to be no season two. I know I'm bitching, but it wasn't a waste of my time watching it or anything. But by the end, it's a series I'll forget about now and never again reference. Until maybe another iteration of it makes its way into the world of entertainment a decade from now. Now, the name of Agent Blake's Dr. Manhattan dildo was actually the electric lithium-powered Excalibur, as confirmed by HBO's leaked schematics from the Watchmen universe. Normally, I like weird, but Watchmen didn't know when to rein it in. There was too much blue penis poking holes in the story. Too much lowbrow shock and not enough highbrow ultimate story proliferation at the climax. All in all, I was disappointed in Watchmen when it ended. Now, completely opposite of Watchmen so far is the U-verse um, series on AT&T streaming service, Mr. Mercedes. I talked about this last year as my favorite Stephen King uh series of novels, which was made into a TV show I'd never had the opportunity to watch. I am now finally going through it. I finished the first season while I was sick, and unlike Watchmen, it left me wanting more. The first season of the series stayed pretty true to the original novel, which is both good and bad. I've read the synopsis for both the second and third season and already know that starting with season two, the series starts to diverge from the novels, but in a way that makes more sense for television based on the series trailer for the season. So it's not really a bad thing. The Mr. Mercedes story centers around a serial killer that mows down a bunch of people with a stolen Mercedes. Years after that crime, the killer, still on the loose, begins taunting those that survived his original attack in an effort to push them into suicide. Most notably of his targets is this lead detective in his original slang. It's, his name is Bill Hodges, and he's now a retired detective. Character development is one of Stephen King's most notable points of superiority as an author. Now, the show takes that lead and doesn't disappoint. Brendan Gleeson as Hodges is quite possibly the perfect casting choice. I can't imagine anyone else playing this role. 
Justine Loop takes on the role of Holly Gibney, my second favorite literary character of all time. Now we'll have to talk about my favorite literary character on another episode. Again, I can't see anyone else playing the role of Holly Gibney, which is one reason I'm reluctant to rush into HBO's The Outsider series, which is based on a crossover novel that follows the Mr. Mercedes trilogy. In The Outsider, Holly Gibney becomes a driving force as a character. Now I'm talking about The Outsider, the book, uh, making it almost as powerful as the original Mr. Mercedes book. But in the HBO series based on that novel, their vision for Holly Gibney is a re-envisioning of the character completely. And I'm not sure I'm ready for that just yet. So I have to finish the Mr. Mercedes series first. Now I could go on and on about this series, uh, but I'm already running long on this episode. We'll have to save more about Mr. Mercedes for a future episode of the podcast. One thing I will offer is that the series starts out with this massively violent and tragic incident that gives the series its name. The Mr. Mercedes killing was very difficult to read and imagine, uh, but the TV series comes out swinging at the fences and throws a grenade into the face of any casual viewer who just happened onto the show. Now, this disturbing scene is... Let's just say it's really hard to watch and experience. It's like that opening salvo of Saving Private Ryan, uh, but rolled into a more desperate three minutes of carnage. My wife, she's not the kind of person who would enjoy a series like this, obviously. Uh, When I decided to start the series... It was about 2 in the morning, and she was knocked out asleep on the couch. She was asleep on the couch. But apparently she woke up at some point prior to the outbreak of this disturbing and horrifying graphic violence. About two-thirds of the way through this scene, she gets up off the couch completely pissed off, outright disgusted, not just at what she had seen on the TV, but by the fact that I was riveted by it. She's a bit of a lightweight when it comes to this type of stuff. Definitely not for the faint of heart, and she's about as faint as they come. If she ever walked in on me watching something truly disturbing, she'd probably have me committed. Like the killer condom. Anyway, that's probably as good as a place as any to shift gears, and let's lighten the mood with a story. So, story time. This past weekend, well, it's been longer than that, like two weekends ago, I ran into a friend from college which reminded me of a drunken night back at university. Now, there's a group of about 10 of us that we left the design studio and went out for a few pictures and some hot wings. This was like over 20 years ago. Basically just a group of college kids blowing off steam. Now, what started out as a couple of beers turned into way too much drinking. As was normal back in those days. Actually, it's still pretty normal nowadays. We were finishing pitchers pretty much as quickly as the waitress could bring them out. We figured we were close enough to the studio that we could leave the cars and walk back. You know, you've been there. College is a little different. One of my closest friends, Steve, goes to the bathroom. Uh, this is the guy I ran into last weekend. Now, honestly, his his name's not really Steve, but I don't think he'd 
be real appreciative of me telling this story, so we'll go with an aliens. Steve goes to the bathroom. He's wobbling the whole way back there. We were drinking Irish car bombs that night, and he's a lightweight. A few minutes pass, and he finally comes out of the bathroom with his older black guy in tow. Now, probably in his mid-60s, if I had to guess, but then again, I was almost as drunk as Steve, and I was like 21 or 22 back then, so my recollection could be way off. And when you're 21 or 22, being 43 seems like you're ancient, so thinking back on it now, this dude could have been like 30 and just full of gray hair, how the fuck do I know? Anyway, Steve wobbles back to the table and announces drunkenly, this is Jimmy, this is my new best friend. So he turns around and gives this guy a big one-sided hug. Jimmy was not having it. Now, the rest of us, were all dumbfounded. Then this guy, Jimmy, sits down on Steve's stool and dumps the shot glass out onto the table out of Steve's empty car bomb mug. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what a Irish car bomb is, you take a shot glass and you fill it half full of Bailey's Irish cream on the bottom. Then you take the top half of the shot glass and you put Jameson whiskey in. Then you pour a mug full of Guinness, oh sweet Guinness, and you drop the shot down in and then you chug the whole thing so that the last thing you taste is the whiskey and then the Bailey's absolutely my favorite drink of all time. Uh, Also, my favorite way to forget the last 12 hours ever happened at any given time. One car bomb is great. Two is wonderful. Three, and you're into dangerous territory. Four, and somebody's probably going to jail. I think we were all two, maybe three in at that point that night. Okay, back to Jimmy. He's dumped out the empty shot glass, Uh, unceremoniously onto the table and reached for the nearest pitcher and starts pouring himself a beer. Now, he hasn't said a word yet, just helping himself out to the beer, you know, free, without a care in the world. Dead silence from the rest of us. Jimmy is just slowly staring each of us in the eye as he drinks our beer. Steve grabs a stool from the table behind us. He pulls it up next to his new best friend and blurts out into the awkward silence, Jimmy said I have a nice penis. Now, if we thought it was awkward before that, we had no idea how weird it was about to get. Jimmy finally opens his mouth and says, Yo friend pissed on my motherfucking shoes. Little bitch owes me a beer. Now, there's still dead silence from the rest of us. Uh, Again... Steve interjects, this time louder. Jimmy said, I have a big penis. So Jimmy stands up, turns around, knocks Steve off of his bar stool. His thing flips over, loud as hell in this bar. Steve hits the floor, nearly knocking over the little table behind us because we were like at a high top in the middle of the floor and there were like lower tables with chairs around the edge of the bar area. Now I say bar, but it wasn't really a bar. It was more of a sports bar, so kind of a more of a restaurant than a bar. Not that that matters, but it's Friday night, place was crowded. I mean, there's families in here. Uh, Jimmy looks down at Steve and yells, Motherfucker, I said you was a big fucking dick, not you had a big dick. Then he turns back to the table, grabs the pitcher, and starts chugging directly out of it. Steve gets upright and yells back, I'll prove it. Then he proceeds to unzip his pants, 
whip out his junk and start pissing on this guy again, apparently. Everyone jumps back. People are jumping off their bar stools. Jimmy, with his head tipped back, still chugging the last drops of Killian's out of the pitcher. And he's late to the party the, these last few seconds. Finally, he looks down, sees what's happening, and stands there like a deer in headlights. At this point, it's, it's like a car accident. You want to look away, but you can't. Uh, you're glued to it like it's the only thing happening in the world, and it's taking place in slow motion. Jimmy finally gets back to reality, drops the pitcher, and pushes Steve backward once again into the table behind him and then yells, Motherfucker gonna die! I'll see you outside, bitch! Then he turns and starts shoving his way out of the restaurant, making his way towards the front of the bar, like out the front door. Now, the rest of us are coming out of our shock, slowly starting to recover. Uh, There's some people screaming. Uh, It's really crowded, but we can see employees coming back toward the commotion coming out of like the bar area in the front of the restaurant. They're not really bouncers, but just like big waiters, I guess you'd say. This was more of a sports bar than a bar bar, remember? So people were in there with their kids, I'm pretty sure. We were we were about 10 miles off of campus, which at our shared design studio. So the average patron that night in the restaurant was probably early 30s. I mean, we weren't we were definitely the minority being college kids. So the sober of us grab the rest and start herding people toward the emergency exit at the back of the restaurant. Somebody kicks it open and this loud ass alarm starts going off. Uh, We like stumble out and start running towards our cars. At this point, people are following us out, including our waitress, thinking we're leaving without paying, which we probably were not on purpose, though. Um, Sorry. We were just trying to avoid the cops at this point. I'm fearing for my own personal safety, not only from getting into a big fight, but getting arrested, shot, I don't know. Uh, It was escalating quick, and I was pretty buzzed out of my gourd. Steve, meanwhile, is waddling around, laughing his fucking ass off, trying to get his pants pulled back up, standing there in his boxers with his cargo pants, you know, dumped around his shoes. Amy, which is one of the girls that I was in studio with, she starts heading back toward the bar with her purse, assuring the waitress that we that we just needed our bill. I go back towards her. I went in basically to help her settle up with the bill, hopefully keeping the cops out of it. Now, I get about halfway across the parking lot towards Amy and the waitress, and here comes Jimmy around the side driveway of the restaurant with three other people in tow. Now, this is where the story gets really fucked up. Apparently, Jimmy was out to dinner with, I guess, his family. Now, family that made him look like the young one of the bunch. Uh, There's one dude with a walker. Uh, Another guy has an oxygen tank in tow on two little wheels that he's pulling around. And then the spry one of the bunch was this morbidly obese woman that looked like if she tried to waddle any faster, she'd flip over face first. Now, maybe this wasn't his family. Maybe this he was an orderly at a local nursing home just taking some people out for an excursion. I don't know. But the morbidly obese one starts lobbing rocks at our cars. But these three people are so far away from all of us that nothing is getting anywhere near hitting any of us. We're just watching in awe. It was just too weird to make any sense. They start slowing down like a hundred yards, you know, away from our cars. And, you know, they're kind of waddling still. The fat one ends up sitting down on the curb to pull her inhaler out of her purse. 
She's still cussing and yelling at us between life-saving puffs on that inhaler. Now, Steve climbs out of the back of her car, turns around, drops Trout again, this time bending over, bearing his ass, shaking it back and forth, and smacking it in the process. Probably not the smartest decision. Now, Jimmy, who was continuing to close the gap during all this, gets a second wind, hoofs it the last 20 feet to Steve's full moon, and kicks him square in his taint as hard as his old ass could. Steve flips over face first into a bush in the parking lot island that he was standing on. Then Jimmy starts unbuckling his pants. He starts yelling, I'm going to piss on this motherfucker right here. And he's looking back over his shoulder at his three cohorts that are still resting on the curb, the one puffing on her inhaler, one leaning on his walker, and the other one adjusting his oxygen tank. Somebody comes up, shoves Jimmy out of the way, grabs Steve up off the ground. He's still writhing in pain, holding his ass. They start apologizing to Jimmy and just put Steve into the back of the car, still swearing and squirming in pain. My ass, my balls, my ass, my balls. That car starts pulling out, driving around toward the driveway on the other side of the restaurant. Now, I'm still waiting on Amy to sign the credit card statement. And realizing we're about to get left behind, I grab her hand and just start walking along the bushes at the back of the restaurant, trying to meet the second car of ours that's now coming around the corner. Everyone's kind of nervously laughing. You know, it's really surreal. We're out of the parking lot. We're all leaving. It's not over yet, though. About a block up the road, there's this 24-hour grocery store. Uh, The lead car, the one that's got Steve in it, it pulls in and stops, so we follow it into the parking lot. Everybody climbs out. Steve's still hopping around, screaming about how bad his ass and balls hurt. The rest of us are starting to get pissed at Steve. I mean, what the fuck? What was Eve thinking? I mean, (laughs) then he starts laughing and then shifts again, quickly gets pissed. Who's got my wallet? Did you get my wallet? Did anyone grab my wallet? Who's got my wallet? We're all confused. No one grabbed your wallet. Then he gets really irate. That dude swiped my wallet in the bathroom. Asshole pickpocketed me while I was taking a piss. I know he did it. I knew he did it. So apparently he was arguing with this guy. And I don't know. According to Steve, the asshole was too old to hit. So he improvised. And then figured he'd get his wallet back at the table. But shit just happened way too fast. So he's all screaming, we got to go back, we got to go back, Jimmy got my wallet, Jimmy got my wallet. (laughs) Everyone's laughing. We ended up leaving the cars and walking back to the studio, dragging Steve the whole way, still mad and yelling that we have to go back to get his wallet. The only one not laughing was Amy, who kept telling the rest of us that we all owed her $325. Steve never did get his wallet back or any of the money in it. He had to go deal with turning off his bank card when we got back to the studio. And then over the next week, he had to get new driver's licenses and everything, which even sucked more for him because he wasn't from Ohio. He was from out of state and he had to go back home to get a new one. I'm pretty sure Amy was the only one that ended up making money on this whole deal since the rest of us gave her cash, feeling bad we'd stuck her with the charges. And now more than 20 years later, every time any one of us run into Steve, we still tell him that Jimmy says hi. Even on holidays, someone from studio will start a group chat, like, you know, 20 years later, 
and tell everyone like Merry Christmas or whatever, inevitably before an hour into that group conversation, someone will mention Jimmy. All right. It's been a few weeks since our last podcast, uh, which we already talked about. And, you know, because of that, this is going to be really long. Before we wrap up uh, with FIFA Mobile, my personal addiction, if you do have comments, topics you want me to talk about, questions about anything in this podcast, uh, included but not limited to FIFA Mobile, hit me up at finallyhesleeps.com or send me an email to Travis get offended at gmail.com. Uh, I'll make sure that that email address is in the podcast episode description too. I love hearing from you. Uh, any interaction with listeners is welcome and needed for this thing to continue to grow. Before we begin, I have to mention the passing of Peter Dwyer, a pillar in the FIFA mobile community. Recently, Peter lost his fight with cancer. Known in the FIFA mobile community as AMT. He was our window into the developer community and a frequent Discord contributor. Peter was more than just an EA liaison for many of us. He was an influential voice, a fellow middle-aged gamer, and someone who understood through experience how much living in Ohio sucked and rocked all at the same time. He will be missed across this entire community of gamers. I don't believe there's a listener out there who hasn't lost someone they care about to cancer. If you have the chance to support the fight against this deadly disease in one way or another, please do so. It's a fight that touches all of us in one way or another. We'll miss you, AMT. Let's try to pick things up. Uh, We've missed a lot since last episode in the world of FIFA Mobile. The freeze event ended with a whimper, not a bang. New Year's Eve was 24 hours of skill game grinding, gem spending, and utter boost madness. Best 24 hours in the season so far, especially if you focused on skill boost. But that's all old news now. The big news right now is team of the year. And if you're a Liverpool fan, it's pretty fucking awesome. In starting roles, you have Allison Becker in goal, Virgil van Dijk at center back, uh, Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold at outside back, as well as Mane at left wing. These were the safe bets from Liverpool for team of the year, all of which most of us had in our predicted squad. The only notable missing was Salah. Personally, I had Mane in and Salah out, though, so I wasn't surprised but I was surprised that he didn't at least earn an initial nominee placement. I mean, he has one now, but in the original release of the event, he was not there. In addition, you have DeLict in center back alongside Van Dyke, uh, Messi, and Mbappe up top. And in midfield, it's made up of Conte, Dejanga, and De Bruyne, which there's no surprise there. Playing the event is pretty boring. On a 24-hour reset, the only packs in the store that give out player possibilities are those damn EA chain packs, which just sucks. Playing the event only takes about 10 minutes each day. Uh, Working your way through the pass on any of the tabs allows you to secure up to two starters free to play, which, you know, it's decent. There are opportunities 
Um, but the time it takes to complete any of them is weeks before you get those starters. Here's the big problem with the event. EA has made all of the starters and the ultimates auctionable at event start. The ultimates are in no way achievable free to play, which means the only way to grab them is through the market or by opening up your wallet and allowing EA to rape your savings account. When you look at the stats on all of the players, the nominees are about as exciting as Team of the Week releases. They will not be in your squad for the full season. The starters, they're better, but they're still not great. They're a band-aid and just offer a different take on whatever their best program card to date is. Best example here is starter Van Dyke versus his recent Team of the Week Van Dyke. Now, the Team of the Week is a superior defender, but Team of the Year Van Dyke is more set to take offense on corners with his jumping and heading stats. It's kind of a give and take. But the Ultimates, that's where the excitement is. The Ultimate versions of all the starters fill in all of those missing gaps. Most likely, any Ultimate will be in your squad the remainder of the year. Herein lies the big problem. With everyone quickly realizing that ultimates are in the realm of possibility if they sell the players in their reserves, the median value of all players drop dramatically. Factor in the starter values over the course of the event, they're, they're all continuing to drop. As everyone continues to sell and is reluctant to buy starters because Team of the Year players are by far the most sought-after commodities at the moment, we're in a vicious downward spiral. Player values are continuing to just sink lower and lower and lower as ultimate values are already stable or in some cases slowly rising. If there had been a future auction date set for the starters or worst case the ultimates this wouldn't be the case right now. There's two ways to look at the current market. Uh, number one if you're wanting to unload player investments and buy ultimates or just buy a bunch of starters beyond your means of claiming through the event, you're shit out of luck, unless you had the coins prior to the start of Team of the Year. This current market is giving you all kinds of struggles. The only coins being made are on spikes created when the bots buying Q can't find players in his market. To find those coin spots, uh, you need to go fishing and hope for the best. Worst yet, it seems like the best fishing spots are always in a market you're not located in. Uh, with there being three different global markets, I always seem to have league mates in a neighboring market cashing in on million coin elites and 100,000 coin silvers while my market's deader than disco. So if you're looking for a market where you can make coins right now, you're pretty much fucked. The second way to look at this market is as a treasure trove of investment opportunities. If you have coins to spend to invest in future upgrades or purchases, this may be the best opportunity you could ever have to double or triple your lot over the next few months. The values are so low right now, you can invest in just about anything and be guaranteed to make coins when it shifts. And yes, uh, before you go asking, it will shift. The market always goes up and down. It's like a wave. Uh, we're down right now, and it can't get any lower. Well, I mean, I guess it could get a little lower, but... Good grief, it's low. The reason we know this is the XP value of the cards and understanding two simple truths with FIFA Mobile. 
first, EA is out to make money. That's their obvious goal as any for-profit business is. And the second truth, the market is not a real market. It's run and regulated by the activity of the bots more so than it is ever regulated by the activity of the players. EA will never allow player value averages uh, to drop below 5 XP per one coin spent because then it would negate the value of resources in the game. Therefore, uh, everyone could just max out their squads without the need to spend any cash. EA is not going to let that happen. 5 to 1 is the standard and has been for every season since the game was implemented. We are, we, I mean, we see moments when it's below that and other times when it's way above. But 5 to 1 is the baseline. If the OVR of a player gives out 25,000 XP in training value, then the median value over the course of the season for that OVR is going to be about 150,000 coins across the course of that season. Okay, that's 150,000 coins is what you're going to have to spend to get a, a player that gives out 25,000 XP. If it's above 150,000, like if you can't buy easily any player in any tier of the market, uh, you know, a defender, a midfielder, an attack that's going to give out 25,000 XP, if you can't grab one for 150,000 XP, then you're in a low market. If it's above 150, then you're in a high market. It would be time to sell. Uh, right now, we're below 150. Uh, buying elites under 100,000 coins is pretty easy. That's where I say it can't go much lower. If you're not saving for ultimates right now, you should be spending coins like a crazy person on your elite investments. Forget the silvers, forget the golds. Now's the time to buy elites. And masters too. Masters under a million coins uh, because masters start out giving 315,000 XP, which means their base uh, median for the course of the season is about 1.6 million. So if you can get masters around a million coins right now, you're almost guaranteed those investments will go up over time. Uh, big investments right now are ultimates. They are a bigger gamble, obviously, but when, but when they become uh, extinct and they're already getting closer to rare right now with two weeks left in the event, it's likely they're going to see huge spikes once they go extinct. Um, they're stable almost at this point. So, and we're seeing a couple of them already starting to rise slowly. Um, Ultimate uh, Becker was down to around 50, 51 million three, four days ago, and he's already slowly dwindling down to one to three cards at a time, and they're already setting standard at about 58 to 59. Last season, we saw Ultimate De Gea settle around 50 to 60 million on the outset. And then he jumped way up over 120 million for the rest of the season. Now, I'm not saying that Becker's going to go that high, um, but if Van Dyke, Allison, Messi, Ronaldo, if they follow suit, if you had a few hundred million coins right now, uh, they would be huge gambles that could very quickly double or triple your coins in a really short time. It's definitely high risk, but it could also be high reward with only a few players involved. Personally, I'm on the saving side of this double-sided coin right now. My sights are set on Ultimate Allison, and I'm walking away from all of my investment opportunities trying to get him. Um, I really want him in my squad before he goes extinct and his value jumps way up. I mean, he's already up to 60 million, 58, 59 in that range now. 
The only problem is, is it doesn't look like it's going to happen at this point because I'm still holding um, hundreds and hundreds of investment elites that I can't move at a price worth selling. I'm still holding out hope, though. Now, if you're still listening because you play FIFA Mobile, you're probably already aware of my presence on YouTube and have caught a few of my FIFA Mobile videos over the year. Now, over the past few weeks, a few of my fellow YouTubers have taken to Twitch and are pushing for the platform to become a new home for live streaming with Facecam uh, for this mobile game. I've heard the call as well, and with Stopty and FIFA Ruben's help, I've started to grow my presence over on Twitch with a new OBS setup. Last week was the first show on this new system, and I was happy with the result. Even though the 90-minute show was about half of it was me working out the equipment setup and getting used to the interface. Uh, but big thanks do go out to Stop D and Ruben for always being voices I've trusted before I ever even started streaming and posting about the game. I followed both uh, long before I joined YouTube or Twitch. Um, I, I truly appreciate their continued support. I wouldn't be where I am without following their lead. I'm still broke, but I'm growing a fan base. Make sure you're following over at Twitch as well as YouTube so you don't miss out on any videos or live streams. And like I said, a group of us from YouTube that have made the commitment to Twitch are planning big things in the next few months. Last week, I met the requirements to become a Twitch affiliate. Uh, the road to partner is a long way off, though, but with the help of all of you, that goal is within reach before the end of the year. I didn't quite hit my goal of 10,000 subscribers on YouTube last year. But ending 2019 just shy of 9,000 was an accomplishment I'm still proud of. Uh, I'll continue to plug away at it. Hopefully ending 2020 at 20,000 subs or more. Uh, that's the new goal. Twitch partner and 20,000 YouTube subs. That and at least one sponsor. Uh, growth is a good thing. It keeps that wife of mine off my ass. And that's as good a place as any to end it. Make sure you check out FinallySleeps.com for all things FIFA Mobile and whatever else I decide to post. Find me on YouTube, Twitch, Instagram, Twitter, everywhere, all under the same name, Finally He Sleeps. If you haven't subscribed over at YouTube, make sure you do. And if you haven't subscribed over at Twitch, make sure you do that too. All of your support does help. Thanks for hanging out with me tonight, and as long as you keep listening, I'll keep putting out episodes. <laughs> <laughs> How many are going off? I don't Three! Three are going off! So I need one more One more needs set off. There's one more that's still alive. I'm not playing right around the road with you, crackheads! Is that four? That one's already going off. It was just reset. Oh, you're. Oh, they got the four! Ten right